0: from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is relative to New Hampshire. Step into the classroom and listen in while a group of UNH students explore the underlying aspects of current issues under consideration at New Hampshire's State House. We pick apart those issues and connect with experts all to share with you insights from our scientific community that enhance our understanding of the biological world right here in New Hampshire, home of the greatest democracy in the world. I'm your moderator, Dr. Anna-Kate Wallingford.
1: I'm Emily Thompson. I'm a senior environmental sustainability and conservation major. Now,
0: Emily has taken on a Herculean effort here in covering House Bill 172, establishing greenhouse gas emission reduction goals for the state and establishing a climate action plan. This bill was retained in committee by the end of the 2021 session, and a similar Senate bill, Senate Bill 71, was laid on the table. So there will be no changes to the current energy policy in New Hampshire this year. While Emily followed this bill and attended public hearings, she reported back to the group in our weekly meeting about what she learned along the way. The group is a team of science liaisons made up of UNH students from a diverse array of departments in the College of Life Sciences and Agriculture, as well as my co-moderators, Extensions Public Engagement Program Manager Nate Burnett and Extensions Public Affairs Manager Lauren Banker. Let's start with Emily's summary following her visit to the public hearing.
1: We are talking about House Bill 172, which is establishing greenhouse gas emission reduction goals for the state of New Hampshire and establishing a climate action plan. This bill wanted to get net zero energy by 2050. Every five years, there would be further goals implemented. They wanted to be 20% below 1990 emission levels by 2025, 50% below those emission levels by 2035, and then net zero by 2050. A ton of people talked at the hearing. There were a lot of different concerns regarding the bill, but they were regarding different things. So a lot of public health concerns property concerns with like seacoast property. And they were mainly focused on what are the impacts of climate change and what are those going to be on New Hampshire residents. So a lot of people talked about their concern for climate change and how expressing it for this bill, they believe that this bill would be a solution to that. But then there was also the controversy associated with the installation of new technologies, raising taxes, green jobs, everything like that. So, there was a ton of information there and a ton of people talked, but that was
0: like my main takeaways. Okay, so there are a dizzying number of directions to take this. And we had many discussions about all of the concerns raised in the public hearing, most of which had to do with direct impacts of climate change on New Hampshire residents, which there are many. As a group, we labored over how difficult it would be to draw a direct line between energy use in the state and the global influence of carbon on all of these direct impacts on New Hampshire residents. So separate and aside from that discussion, Emily chose to focus her attention on the question of whether or not the goals of the bill were feasible within the time frame. of course, with the specter of costs hanging over her head at all times. Let's turn to the expert's For some context, Emily spoke with Dr. Clayton Mitchell, a professor in UNH's Department of Natural Resources in the Environment. He has decades of experience working in energy policy right here in New Hampshire and happened to teach one of Emily's favorite classes on alternative energy policy here at UNH.
1: So I'm in charge of looking at like the environment and energy and agriculture bills going through. And when I saw this one, I kind of jumped right on it after the class last fall, I was like, I just took an entire class on this. So I know the perfect expert to ask. (laughs) If it were to get passed, do you think New Hampshire would be able to do that transition with wind, water, and solar? Like, do we have enough space for solar? I don't know if they talked about offshore wind. I know there's potential there.
2: Yeah, Um, I, I definitely think that we have the capability of planning for and accommodating the deployment of renewable energy in this state. Some of the power plants that are along the coast have shut down, like Schiller is not running. These are potential connection points for transmission cables. If we were to do offshore wind uh, off New Hampshire's coast, whether it's in our waters, Maine's or Massachusetts, you look at it regionally, uh, there's plenty of places where there are power plants that have been decommissioned that you have a lot of infrastructure in there that could support the inflow of power from offshore. The bill itself is going to find resistance from folks that are are convinced that, you know, these clean energy policies end up, quote unquote, costing the ratepayers money. Okay. That's what what the public statement is going to be.
1: If it's 20% below 1990 levels by 2025, it looked as though they were only going to start enforcing this in 2023. Would that 20% drop in 1990 levels, would that be that easy to make happen if it could happen within a matter
2: of just a few years? Yeah, it would it would be because in 1990, we were burning coal.
0: Oh, true. Yeah, so emissions were mm-hmm. high. I'm going to pop in and interrupt Emily's discussion with Dr. Mitchell and share our conversation about the diversity of sources from where our energy currently comes from.
1: So here are New Hampshire's primary sources, which is actually surprising because they our number one source is nuclear from the Seabrook power plant with about 60% of our energy coming from there. After that, it's natural gas. Then the natural gas that we use comes from, I think it's two big power plants. And then you get more into the renewables, including primarily biomass and hydroelectric. Coal was at the like very bottom of it with about like 2% coming from coal.
0: So do you know with... What the folks who are looking to change carbon emissions are looking to do, are they trying to offset just that natural gas or are they also thinking about like kind of a resilience plan? Like something I'm thinking about with that 60% of our energy coming from nuclear, what happens if that goes away for whatever reason? If it's because like we decide not to have nuclear plants or like some horrible thing happens.
1: So that's where the like whole um, when people talk about like diversity of the grid, that's where that comes into play. So in case there was some sort of nuclear disaster or accident that happened and that was cut off, what? means would we have to combat that? And a lot of people's past strategies for dealing with that has been coal. They're called peaker plants. And so they're plants that aren't run all the time. But if we have a higher demand for energy for whatever reason, and we need extra energy quick, we can fire up these power plants. But going forward with this energy plan, if we wanted to get New Hampshire on the track to be towards like either carbon neutral or net zero, that is where we would need more diversity with the renewable energy. So not just solar or not just hydroelectric, but multiple different sources that are available to implement when the time would call for it. In New Hampshire too, I didn't realize this, but one of the main renewable sources that we use is biomass, which is just like wood or materials that can be burned and used for energy having that as an option as well, kind of increases our diversity of options. So wait, is using, is burning like wood considered to be a renewable source? I mean, it obviously renews itself, but isn't that still like releasing a lot of carbon into the atmosphere? Yeah, there's a debate about it. So it's, considered a renewable source by a lot of people but a lot of like ecologists have the argument of is it renewable because if we burn all of it it's still releasing the same carbon that we're having an issue with and we would in theory run out of it eventually but as of right now it is considered by most people renewable just because we have so much available and you can grow more
3: it's really interesting because nuclear energy is carbon free but not renewable biomass is renewable but not carbon free. And sometimes those terms are used interchangeably. But really, when someone's talking about renewable energy, don't they kind of mean that it's also carbon free just in terms of vernacular and what people mean when they say something? We use those words interchangeably, but they aren't interchangeable.
1: Yeah, like renewable usually means that whatever resource you're using can regenerate itself. So like Like oil and coal and stuff is not usually considered renewable because there's a finite amount of it, and it's not like something that's like gonna come back really quick. Like it's taken like thousands and thousands of years to like like form and be there. But then something like wood, where you can you know plant more trees and they grow up, would be considered renewable. I think that what Nate says said is important though because like I feel like when we talk about renewable energy, like colloquially, we mean sustainable like in not changing the climate, but that's not what it actually means.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take it back to the point of this particular bill that we're following where the goal is to reduce carbon emissions. So as much as it's, you know, like distinguishing between these different definitions is really, really important because a lot of people would argue that nuclear is not necessarily a clean Energy or not necessarily, it's like, like Nate said, is not renewable, but it certainly would achieve the goal of this bill, which, you know, or, or has contributed to the goal of this bill, which is reducing carbon emissions where wood burning doesn't.
3: Anna, you just brought in a third term, clean energy. And so, clean energy, I think, is really interesting. And I think you can argue that all energy sources have environmental impacts at some point in the supply chain. Uh, So it's all relative. There's nothing that's totally clean. Solar energy, you're, you're dealing with the manufacturing and disposal of solar panels. With wind, you're dealing with huge wildlife impacts. But with nuclear energy, there's issues in the extraction of uranium, and there's also always the potential of a nuclear disaster. Even if that potential is very, very small and insignificant, it still is above zero. We always talk about the negative impacts of fossil fuels, but they all have negative impacts and we have to balance them somehow. And it's really difficult to find unbiased ways of doing that because everyone brings their ideologies into these conversations on what's important to them and what is not.
0: I am putting a link to the source for Emily's information on where our energy comes from, which includes an interactive map where you can see the various power plants in New Hampshire. It's it's very cool. Check it out. You'll also notice that the net interstate flow of electricity is negative in New Hampshire, which means that we currently produce more energy than we use here in the state. That's mostly because of the nuclear power plant. But back to the question at hand, what is the most likely approach to achieving the goals set out by this bill? Back to Emily's conversation with Dr. Mitchell.
2: So we're talking by 2050? Yeah. I, I think it is, it's going to be a mix of um, solar and offshore wind. Okay. We have a lot of opportunities still to install solar in ways that don't disrupt the environment but it's, you know, it's kind of happening at a piecemeal approach, you know, like abandoned gravel pits, uh, capped landfills, parking lots, all these you know, buildings and roofs. We don't, and and the, the the resistance to solar happens when there's a large scale project that's either chewing up farmland or cutting down trees. And that unfortunately happens to be cheap land. And so it it just, you know, it's, it's because we have a lack of policy to steer solar in a way that is less impactful, we end up with projects that get people, you know, worked up. Right. The second part of this bill is interesting to me, which is the state energy strategy, section three, mm-hmm. where they, they start getting into what the state energy strategy should be, which I think is great. Um, but it, 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 we should have a, you know, a more comprehensive state energy policy. Have you been following the Emissions Commission? <laughs> <laughs> not, not closely. Okay, they. I, I haven't seen their final report, but they did a lot of work too. It's called the Emissions Commission. You can get it on their website.
1: Okay. Yep, I have it right here.
2: Okay. So you see the new the the very last section, section three of um, the bill, on the last page
1: of five ninety.
2: No, of the one seventy two. Oh. It, it modifies the existing state strategy statute and I'll send okay. you that. So there, yeah, what they're, what 172 is trying to take 590 and say, all right, we need something that with some teeth in it and we need to start taking in, this stuff in, into an, an account. And then we want our state energy strategy to reflect what we find here. So that, that's why I'm kind of in the position where I say, oh, I don't know if this is going to pass. Right. Okay. But, but it's what, It's what several other states are doing.
1: Okay.
0: So Dr. Mitchell was correct in his assumption that this new legislation did not pass this year, but it made us wonder what the current statute says. So yeah, this is the Existing State Energy Strategy Statute,
1: which addresses the public utilities. So it's the New Hampshire Energy Policy, and it just states that the General Court declares that it shall be the energy policy of the state to meet the energy needs of the citizens and businesses of the state at the lowest reasonable cost while providing for the reliability and diversity of energy sources to maximize the use of cost-effective energy efficiency and other demand-side resources and to provide the safety and health of the citizens, the physical environment of the state, and the future supplies of resources with consideration of the financial stability of the state's utilities. So what are you you picking up from that? So it basically just says that energy needs to be provided to the consumers of the state of New Hampshire. It doesn't say how it needs to be provided. It doesn't say with renewable energies or without them. But the people of New Hampshire need to be able to have energy for a reasonable price. It can't be too detrimental to our state's environment, um, nor public health. And it needs to be able to give the people of New Hampshire all the energy that they need. It can't let it fall short for them.
0: Yeah, it It doesn't say how that
1: is supposed to happen, but it needs to happen nonetheless.
0: And it also says a diversity of energy sources, too. Yeah which I don't know if that means just like an open marketplace, like you should be able to pick who supplies your energy or if you <laughs> if you really want to have a say in what kind of energy that you want to buy. I don't know. That's- yeah.
1: Um, I know that that also is a strategy for grid reliability. So that is a way to make our grid more stable so that if there we had all one source of energy and then something happened where we couldn't access that, we would have several other options in order to make sure that that energy is still being supplied.
0: So it sounds like given current legislation, there is a mandate for the state to provide New Hampshire residents with a diversity of energy sources at the lowest cost possible. But the devil is in the details. Emily spoke with Chris Skoglund, who is the Climate and Energy Program Manager at New Hampshire's Department of Environmental Services. He has some intimate knowledge about the history of this bill and others like it, as well as a better understanding for the potential of meeting this mandate with costs in mind. Emily started out by asking him whether or not the goals outlined in the bill were feasible.
4: So while there's a technical feasibility of whether the state can get to greenhouse gas emission reductions by 2050, there's a planning component that is required of the state to figure out how we're going to do that. And so our analysis was that we be required to have at least two more additional staff in order to undertake the planning that was required as, as the document was written. The reason for that is when we did the climate plan back in 2008 and 2009, and Clay was involved in that, um, but I was the primary staff overseeing coordination of that We had almost 12 New Hampshire DES staff that were working on it part-time. And we also had additional funding that had been made available to hire UNH-based consultants to do kind of the feasibility analysis to help us determine where the greenhouse gas emission reductions would occur, what the economic costs would be, but also what the benefits would be. So that in the end, we were able to come up with a plan that said, well, we know where we think we can be in a cost-effective fashion, in a way that would uh, result in us having significant economic benefits to the entire state and get, you know, 20% of the way to to 2050. We would need to undertake a similar um, level of analysis to do so again because one of the big things that we were hearing from the New Hampshire Business and Industry Association If if you've ever heard just referred to as the New Hampshire BIA, Mm -hmm. um, they are concerned about what are the costs to implement this to the state if we were to transition the entire energy system. And so some of that is going to come from energy efficiency, which you know if you use less energy, you should have lower energy costs. But if we start to transition from oil, coal, natural gas to other sources of energy, you know, do those costs go up? for those energy supplies so that even if I'm using less energy, does the per unit cost of energy actually go up so that if I use half as much energy, but it costs four times as much to supply that energy, I'm still paying twice as much. Like those were the sorts of questions that they, they had. So in order for us to undertake that, that's why we would have needed to bring in the consultant.
0: I'm going to jump in here because Emily and Chris, a couple of alternative energy enthusiasts, got really into the weeds about the potential new technologies on the horizon. Some really cool stuff. Uh, But the take home here is that decisions made here in New Hampshire are not made in a vacuum. Folks like Chris, who really have their finger on the pulse of this stuff, have turned their attention to how All of our energy needs might be met with electricity. We're obviously accustomed to using electricity to light our homes and run our appliances, but the trends in technology are pointing us towards using electricity for things we are accustomed to powering by burning stuff. Right, So instead of burning gas to power our cars, we might plug it in at night to charge its battery with electricity from the grid. Instead of burning natural gas or wood to heat our homes, we would power heat pumps with electricity from the grid. This is all to say it's really hard to gauge costs considering technology is changing so quickly. Estimates based on technology from 2008, more than a decade ago, are wildly out of date. This might explain why you might come across such wildly different accounts of what these changes might cost the average consumer. That's just my guess.
4: New Hampshire is not alone in this. We are part of a regional grid. There's been a lot of activity happening in other states. And so that's been putting a reduction in, like it's basically just turned our generators off. Our coal plants almost completely off. Our natural gas plants are running less and less. But that does mean that you know, if we need to plug in more cars, or plug in cars at all, because there's such a small percentage of the fleet now, and then plug in our homes to the grid, we need to be thinking how does it fit into the entire regional electric picture? How do the other six New England, the other five New England states, and then connections to Canada, and then to like Pennsylvania, how does that tie in? And how? there's a couple different studies that have come out one, which is come out from a team that's based in Princeton. They've been making estimates on how much more grid infrastructure are we going to need, even if we quadruple the size of our energy efficiency. So like, you know, homes that use electricity for electricity applications now, what if we used a quarter of what we do now, the average rural or suburban home, you'd be getting two cars, maybe more because you could have kids. Then you'd also been taking your entire heat load. And even if we've got a heating system that uses half as much energy to give you the full amount of heat in your house, that's still all of that heat energy is coming from the grid. So we're going to need more energy generation. It has to come from clean energy sources, but then we may have to figure out how are we going to minimize the poles and wires that we build to distribute that. So there are massive economic opportunities because of the investments that need to be made but at the same time there's very clear losers like if you own an oil propane or natural gas company there's some implications here when they hear climate planning they hear economic destruction right and I completely empathize with that so that's why when we do a climate plan we also need to be thinking not just how do we drive down emissions but how do we make sure that the we're trying to make people whole Are there economic opportunities for those so that someone who is selling oil or propane and delivering it now or installing oil and propane burning systems, do we help them get the funding and training they need to transition to a heat pump sales and installation um, company? Because, you know, my neighbor... Her heating oil system went down and I tried to talk her into a heat pump and she's like, well, the oil guy doesn't know anything about that. So I just had him give me what was in the back of us because he had it right there and I need heat. It's not just policies. We just need them to be like, no, this is what we do. do, But how do we make them do that? So it's not a threat to their hundred year old family company. And I'm completely on board with how do we help them? Because there's, there's a fairness and equity issue to that. When you look at the 172, really what would have happened under ideal circumstances is that statute would have been the framework for a planning process that would have repeated itself every five years in the pursuit of those climate targets planning process and having it be comprehensive with the support of state staff and a consultant that can take the input from businesses from the environmental side, from the social side, but from the public at large. And then help kind of feed that back and say, here's what happens if we do this, but here's this other path. If we follow this, this will happen in this other path. And if we don't do anything, here's what happens in all the other states and here's what happens to New Hampshire. So we can kind of have this like baseline counterfactual to yeah, sure, we can say climate isn't gonna do anything no matter what we do, because New Hampshire is a small state, but there's a cost to
0: inaction. So many things to consider. But... The one thing I heard over and over again was that we just need a plan. So no matter where you stand on climate change or alternative energy issues, we need to plan for responding to rapidly changing technology, changes being made to the grid in our region, changes being made nationally and internationally. Um, Stay tuned for more from the state and, and I'm sure you should stay tuned for more legislation on this area in the future. So thank you so much to Clay Mitchell and Chris Goglin for their help understanding this topic, and thanks to you for listening. Relative to New Hampshire is a production of UNH Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or Creative Commons licensing. UNH Cooperative Extension is a nonpartisan organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement the university of new hampshire new hampshire counties and the u.s department of agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the granite state this podcast in particular was made possible by the unh extension internship program if you're interested in supporting great work like this for the future learn more at extension.unh.edu internships